0: You can see that this is the story of the Bible. There is nothing new here. That's from Genesis up to now. That's Church is not this nice place where you come so you can feel good about yourself or you have a nice time. No, there is engagement in battle, warfare going on. Great joy to be with you. There is no place I would rather be than being with you this morning, besides heaven, of course, or the new heavens and the new earth. Would you please open your Bibles to Titus? Titus chapter 1. And today is our last sermon on Titus 1. Titus 1, and we are going to follow or following the pattern we have been doing. We are going to read verses, starting verse 5, and then we are going to jump to verse 10. So if you can, would you stand, please, once again? Here is the word of the Lord, Titus 1, starting verse 5, says, This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remains into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now verse 10, here's the reason why they need elders. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. You may be seated, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord. How many of you know... The brown-headed cowbird. You guys know cowbirds? No? Some of you know. Yes. The brown-headed cowbird I, is North America's most common brood parasite. A female, a female cowbird makes no nest of her own. But instead lay her eggs in the nest of other birds, who then raise the young cowbirds. And I remember watching a documentary, because they're pretty cute birds, but they're nasty. And it's fascinating because the mom, as she goes to somebody else's nest, she literally, if she needs to, she's gonna throw the mom's the other mom's eggs away from the nest, so she can lay hers. And then once she lays her eggs, she leaves and and watches from far away the other mom coming and taking care of the egg. It's fascinating, that's why they're called parasitic, they're parasites, they use other people. Uh, What is interesting is that The cowbird eggs hatch faster than the other species. Giving the cowbird nestlings a head start in getting food. So, for example, we have five eggs there. And one is from the cowbird mom. That egg will hatch first, so that baby will come first. And he's going to be fed first. He's going to grow faster than the other ones. And the comparison is important because false teachers are just like cowbirds. They come to different churches' nests to lay their eggs and see them hatching. And they hatch pretty quickly. False teaching spreads very fast in the life of some churches. And once the false teaching is laid there, suddenly you have a different type of species in the church a different type of bird. And as I think about the cowbird and this nasty thing of coming to somebody else's nest to lay her own eggs, very similar to false teachers, they infiltrate themselves in other churches in order to lay their own satanic eggs. I was reminded that in Mark chapter 4, in Mark chapter 4, our Lord Jesus actually compares demons, Satan, to birds. Because you remember the parable of the soil. And the first soil is the hard one. The seed falls, hits the hard ground. And what happens? The birds come and do what? Yeah, they devour. These. And then Jesus explains and He says that that is the work of Satan. As the, the Word of God is proclaimed and if it's not embraced and applied Satan, as the satanic bird, this vulture, will come and devour it. I like what J.C. Ryle says. He writes, Satan is ever watching for our halting and seeking occasion to destroy our souls. But nowhere, perhaps, is the devil so active as in a congregation of gospel listeners. Nowhere does he labor so hard to stop the progress of that which is good, to prevent men and women from being saved and being sanctified. So right now we have birds flying, ready to snatch the the seeds. And these demonic birds love to infiltrate healthy churches. Why? So it can pervert the truth of God. And as you think about the Lord Jesus, you think about how often Satan is pictured as this beast, this foul bird, this Vulture, we are reminded that we are in a spiritual warfare. And with the coming, the ascension, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the victory has been inaugurated. Amen? The victory has been inaugurated, but has not been what? Consummated. We are living in this already and not yet. Yes, Christ has conquered Satan, but he has not removed him completely. He has not. Taken him out of this world. He's still here. And of course, we understand that his power is limited by the triumph of Jesus Christ, by the triumph of the resurrection. But nonetheless, he is active. So, for example, in Daniel chapter 7, we read about the ascension of the Son of Man as Jesus comes in his resurrection and he takes his seat by the ancient of days and his reigning. We read Daniel saying, And as I look, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire, meaning the enemy was conquered. But as for the rest of the beasts that are following, the great beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season, meaning they are still active. They are not removed. So as we think about this already and not yet, Christ is victorious, Christ is reigning, Satan has been conquered, but the war is not over yet. There are still battles. The war has been conquered, and that's why, remember that parallel that we have have seen before of D-Day and V-Day? It's so important. There is victory inaugurated, but you're waiting for the victory consummated. I love what Andy Nassali writes. He says, Right now, we are living in that time between the D-Day and the V-E-Day. Jesus has already won the victory, but he has not yet consummated it. The kingdom is already, but also not yet. And Like Adolf Hitler, after D-Day, the dragon is raging because he knows that he doesn't have long. Revelation 12 He's furious because he knows that his time is what? Short. Yes. He knows that Christ has decisively defeated him, so he's taking his rage on Christ's church by attempting to, that's important, deceive them with lies and false teachings and to devour them with persecution. That's the time we are living between. And we saw a few Sundays ago that the establishment of pastors, elders, overseers in the church is because we are in this between time. The last days have been inaugurated and the Markov can see that this is the story of the Bible. There is nothing new here. That's from Genesis up to now. That's the drum of the scriptures. What? We have an enemy who wants to destroy us, wants to attack the truth. And that's the story of the Bible. God placing godly leadership to take care of his people. And Satan always trying to attack his people. So, as you read Titus 1, especially verses 10 through 16, there's clearly a language of war here. There's a war going on. The language is not nice. It's very sharp, harsh. Why? Because it's war language. I like what Doriani and Phillips, they say, they write, We may see Satan's strategies against the church in two main directions. We must often think of persecution from outside the church. We, we most often think of persecution from outside the church, both from, from the surrounding culture and from anti-Christian governments. He said, the New Testament often remarks on this threat and warns of our need to show courage in the face of suffering. But the other other attack arises from within the church in the form of false teaching. This is an even more deadly threat to God's people. For while persecution has the tendency to strengthen believers and even increase the size of the church, listen to this, doctrinal corruption leaves Christ's people weak, scattered, and confused. If Christians ever have to choose between persecution and false teaching, the perspective of the Bible encourages us to dread heresy above all other plagues. What a contrast with the church in America that embraces heresy, loves tickling ear teachings. Spurgeon once said that our swords will never rust from lack of enemies to his might. And Paul reminds us, as we are thinking about this spiritual warfare, finally be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. And Titus 1 reminds us that we are not spiritual warfare. Church is not this nice place where you come so you can feel good about yourself or you have a nice time. No, there is engagement in battle, warfare going on. And I hope that you prepare yourself to come to church as you are preparing yourself for battle. Sadly, Christians wake up just before service, come to church just lingering, just thinking about themselves. There is a spiritual warfare taking place. You need to prepare yourselves. How do you prepare yourself Saturday to worship the Lord on Sunday? How do you get up? When do you get up on Sunday? How are you preparing yourself? That's vital. So, as we come to Titus 1, we see here uh, verses 10 through 16, there is actually a, a continuation of the preceding verses. But we see that there is a contrast between the elders and the false teachers, the true uh, pastors and the false pastors. And the false Pastors are pictured as full of blemish and the true pastors as blameless. These false teachers are marked by blemish. That's what Paul is telling us, how to take a good look at them. So, as we continue, we're going to finish today We saw the rod to silence the false shepherds. That's when he tells that they must be silenced. We saw the rod to rebuke. That's when Paul tells that they must be rebuked sharply. And now we are walking through the rod to keep the false shepherds away from the flock. Verses 15 through 16. So look with me to verse 15. And Paul says, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defile and unbelieving nothing is pure, but his Mind and conscience is completely defiled. And Paul is telling us that these false teachers, they are, first of all, unbelievers. They claim to love Jesus, they claim to believe in Jesus, but they are actually what? Unbelievers. And because they are unbelievers, they are defiled. Because they never embrace Jesus Christ alone, they have never treasured Jesus alone, they continue in their sins and they are defiled. And there is a massive contrast because they are unclean, they are defiled. And look at Titus chapter 3, verse 4. In verse 3, he's telling that that's how we were. We were defiled in verse 3. But when the goodness, chapter 3, verse 4, but when the goodness of and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the what? The washing of regeneration and renew of the Holy Spirit. They have been washed. They have been cleansed. We, true Christians, but these false teachers, they have not received re- regeneration. They continue in their filthiness, defiled. And now Paul is going to tell us what happens: is the the def- interior, the internal defilement, comes out in their actions. The internal defilement will certainly come out in their words, in their actions. A defiled person will show himself to be defiled. In God's timing, he will manifest that. So. Verse 16 says, says, here's what Paul is saying. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And what Paul is doing here, he's passing a judgment on them. Amen? He's passing a judgment. So much of Christianity today is you cannot judge anybody. Paul is passing a judgment. They do not know God. They claim to know, but they do not know God. And they're actually detestable, disobedient. They're unfit, worthless, Paul is saying. There is a strange and unbiblical idea that we cannot judge people's profession of faith by their lives. As if somebody professes to be Christian, nobody can argue that. Oh, he professed to love Jesus. Who am I to judge him? The Bible tells us to judge someone by their works, by their lifestyle. Paul says, 1 Timothy 5.8, referring to those who are not supporting the widows in their own family. Paul says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and he's talking here about the vulnerable in the family, the the widows. he, He says, and especially for members of his household, look how Paul says, he has denied the gospel. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. By the works... By their works, they show themselves to uh, Deny the gospel. The gospel is denied by their actions. How often we hear people saying, Oh, we cannot judge a person's heart. Jesus says that our words and our actions are flowing from where? From our hearts. So, If a person is living in sin, is sinning, That's a reflection of their hearts. That's crazy. You cannot judge a person's heart. Wait, wait wait a second. If Jesus is telling us that what we say is coming out of our hearts, if all we do is coming out of our hearts, then what? Somehow we're going to have to pass a judgment. And that's what Paul is doing here. And that's what we're called to do. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 7. In Matthew chapter 7, you can open your Bibles there. It's a... In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, starting verse 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will, you will recognize them by their fruits. And then he says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the sick tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a sick tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Listen to this. Thus, you will recognize them by their what? Fruits. Fruits. And then Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Remember, many were already infiltrating the churches in Crete. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, what you workers of lawlessness. That's Paul is basically basing this statement on Jesus' statement. So he, Paul says, they profess to know God. Lord, Lord, but they deny Him by their works. They profess, there's profession, this public affirmation, Oh, we love Jesus. Oh, Jesus is such a treasure for us. And they pray, Oh, sweet Jesus, precious Jesus. And they talk about Jesus. But by their deeds, by their lifestyle, they show that they do not love Jesus. They do not know Jesus. It's interesting the words used here in both Titus and Matthew. They use the same word. In Titus 1, they confess, they profess to know the Lord. And the Lord will profess, confess publicly that He never knew them. In Titus 1:1, we read this. Paul saying, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and what? Their knowledge of the truth which leads to godliness. To know the truth, to love the truth, implies a life of godliness. That's why Paul says, Oh, they claim to know, they claim to know Christ, they claim to know the truth. But actually, they deny that by their works. John says, 1 John 4, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And you think about these false teachers, they were saying that because of their attachment to the Mosaic law, because of their allegiance to Moses, they actually knew God better than those Christians who were not joining to the Mosaic covenant. That's what they say. Oh, I know Yahweh better than you because we keep the Torah of Moses. And Paul says, actually, they do not know God. They claim to have this deeper knowledge And actually, they have no clue who God is. So, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their what? Works. And then Paul says, they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any what? Good work. And there is, throughout this letter to Titus, um, uh, Paul highlights the importance of works in the Christian life. Godliness. Why? Because... Through our works, our actions, we either prove or deny our claim of being saved. Listen to this. Through our lifestyle, we are either confirming or denying our salvation, our lifestyle. That's why we saw earlier, but it's interesting going back to this passage here, 1 Timothy, because Paul used the same word here, to deny. He says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives... Is forsaking the widow that needed the help. help. Deta- he says, they have denied the faith. Look at the same word, they deny by their works. And worse than an unbeliever. And that's not a, a denial like, oh no, I don't love Jesus. They deny by actions. Similarly, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of... And he's talking inside the church, these brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless... Unappeasable, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Look at that. Having what? The appearance of godliness. But what? Denying the power of the gospel. They, oh, they appear to be so godly. They appear to be Holy. But by their actions, they actually deny the power of the gospel in their lives. And that's why church discipline is vital in the life of a local church. That's why we need church discipline. Because what we are doing is saying to the person who is unwilling to repent, is saying that your confession, your profession is not matching your actions. Actually, by your actions, you do not belong. To the community of the Holy Ones. And the Lord Jesus commands us to remove you from the assembly of the Holy Ones. They profess to to know God, but they deny Him by their works. So we see that there is this inseparable connection. You're going to see more throughout this letter of knowing God, faith, and good works. If you truly know Christ, if you truly love Christ, if you truly embrace sound doctrine, your life will be marked by holy and good works. So for example, Paul says Paul says to, to the church, in, to the Colossians, to the Christian Colossians, he says, "And so from the day we heard and we, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with what? The knowledge of his will." In all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, look at that, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. If you truly know God, and to know God means to love Him, to be in a covenantal relationship with Him, you will bear good fruit. Paul also says, To the Thessalonians, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in what? Every good work and word. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's not your work. That's beautiful. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Can you catch that? We are not saved by works that we have done, but we are saved for good works. We are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. That's what Paul is telling us. If the person has been truly saved, he was regenerated going to a new creation, going back to Genesis where we remember that everything was good and work was good and there was good works with Adam and Eve before the fall. And he's saying, if you are born again, if you are a new creation in Christ, you're saved not by your own good works, but you're saved for good works. You're recreated for good works. Amen? Paul will tell us in Titus chapter 2, you can look there, Titus chapter 2. Talks about the coming of Christ, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. And then he will tell us in verse 14 our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for what? For good works. When the person is saved, he's zealous, he's excited to do good works. Not like he's lingering. Oh, are you serious? I need to do that. It's like, you're excited. God saved me. I love him. I have a new heart, a new mind. That is just the natural outflow of God's work in us the good works. So, verse 16 they profess, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Keep that in mind. Verse 16 is so important. Some scholars, they say that verse 16 is the hinge in this whole letter here. It holds the whole letter together because Paul is showing us how sound doctrine, true knowledge of God, will necessarily lead to holy living, godliness, by contrast. And then he's going to tell us, he says, that they are detestable. Look at that. They are detestable. And Paul does not spare words to describe these guys here. The word detestable, if you have the King James, abominable, the word in Greek relating to a person, pertaining to a person or thing that stirs up feelings of repugnance. Nothing abhorrent, detestable, nothing nasty. If you see the, the, this word, how it's used, you see the, X, the LXX, that's the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. So in the Septuagint, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, this word is used for when God and Israel regard something as defiled and abominable. Oftentimes, this word is used in the context of pagan activities and refers to someone worthy of God's wrath. So Paul is saying that these men are pagan to their cores. They are pagans. They are abominable. Think about a corpse. And after some days that corpse starts smelling really bad. Really nasty. And that's the picture here. All that they do, all that they say, how they live, there's no sweet aroma. It's actually putrid. It's abominable. Then not only abominable, detestable, Paul says that they're disobedient. Disobedient. Here are the men who always thought that they were being obedient to God's law, right? We, we are obedient to God's Torah, to God's law. And that's what people say. People who embrace these Judaizing teachings, they, they always claim they to be obedient. And Paul says, actually, they're Disobedient. What a punch in their faces. They who claim to be the most obedient ones by keeping the laws. Paul says, actually, you are disobedient. And disobedience is a mark of fallen humanity. When you are marked by disobedience, that means that you are outside Jesus. Think about the the humanities. We have one humanity humanity in Adam, one humanity in Jesus. Adam is the disobedient son. Jesus is the obedient son. Those who are in Adam are marked by disobedience disobedience those who are in Jesus are marked by obedience so Paul is saying that they are actually in Adam they're Adamic in Titus 3 3 you can look at there look at what Paul says before salvation before regeneration for we ourselves were once foolish and what disobedient that's the mark of people who are not saved they are disobedient Those who love Jesus, what do they do? They obey Jesus. If you love me, you will uh, keep my commandments. John says, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And then Paul says, just to finish this list, he says that they're unfit, unfit for any good work. Or if you have the NAS, says worthless, worthless. And Paul's denunciation finishes with a crushing blow now. These men are actually worthless, Paul says. The word used here, adokmos, in Greek, was used for something that failed the test. In Paul's letters, Thomas Reiner tells us that in all of Paul's letters, when he used this word, adokmos... He always refers to unbelievers, people who are not saved. So they are unfit, worthless for every good work. Interesting that Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, what? Equipped for every good work. But because these men, they have departed from the sound doctrine, they're actually unfit for every good work. It's fascinating, the contrast. Once you are in the sound doctrine, once you are grounded in the Scriptures, you are indeed equipped for every good work. As soon as you depart from there, you are unfit for any good work. So Paul tells us they are detestable, disobedient, unfit. And look at it. Once again, he talks about the importance of works. Because there is no way to be united to Jesus. Think about that, brothers and sisters. What is faith? Faith is to embrace Jesus Christ. Faith is when you embrace Jesus as your own. And your sins have been placed upon Him and His righteousness is placed now on you. The Bible, especially Paul, talks a lot about faith, salvation as being in union with Christ. You are united with Christ. And there is no way for you to be in union with Christ and live an unholy life. A disobedient life. That's why there is this emphasis in good works. How can you be in dwelt with the Holy Spirit, be adopted by the Father, and yet live a life that resembles satan's lifestyle and the picture that paul is painting here is that these people they must be they must be removed avoided they are defiled they're unclean they're abominable they're worthless stay away from these people paul is using the language of the old testament When he says that they are defiled, abominable, unclean, Paul is going back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, to be defiled, to be unclean, to be abominable, meant that you were away from God's presence. You could not be in God's presence by being unclean and defiled. There is no way to dwell with the Holy One. That's why he has all those laws, so he can dwell with his people by having them cleansing themselves constantly. Because he cannot dwell with unholy people. In Leviticus 15, for example, we read 15.31 Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness. They better be separate from their defilement, otherwise their defilement will separate them from me. So they must be separate from defilement, uncleanness, otherwise they will be Separated from me. In Numbers, in Numbers, Moses says, Numbers 19:20. If the man who is unclean does not cleanse himself, that person shall be what? Cut off from the midst of the assembly, since he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The person who is defiled must be removed. And that's what Paul is saying. As good, faithful shepherds, you have God's rod to remove these false shepherds from God's flock. Morales, he helps us understand. He says, to be clean is understood fundamentally as being, to be unclean is understood fundamentally as being excluded from the presence of the Lord, while being made clean means becoming fit for his presence. Then he says, Here, finally, is the reason why being clean matters and why becoming unclean was a cause of distress. Why? Because being defiled meant that you are not in the presence of the God who is full of joy, love, comfort. So, what Paul is doing here, he's looking at the whole package that these false teachers are trying to sell. He's looking at the whole package, their life, their doctrine. And Paul says, they're unbelievers. They're worthless. Stay far away from these people. I like what Doriani and Phillips, they write. They say, a surgeon surgeon needs a sharp scalp to remove a tumor that is killing the body. And the confrontation of false teachers likewise calls for a sharp word. In many cases, heretics must be publicly excluded excluded from the church. As faithful shepherds, elders must not provide a lectern for false teachers, but must be willing to remove those shown to be wolves. And you see, there is strong language here. We we talk about that. There is strong language in in, in these verses here. It's very sharp. It's heavy, right? Look at it. Verses 10 through 16, some strong languages, words here. Evil beasts, lazy gluttons, liars, abominable, defiled. Those are strong words, sharp words. Paul is literally looking at this man in their eyes and saying, you are are insubordinate, you are rebellious, you are an empty talker, you are deceivers. You are ruining whole families. That's what Paul is doing, looking them in their eyes and telling them that. You are liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. You are devoted to Jewish myths. You are far away from the truth. Your mind and your conscience are defiled. You profess to know God, but you deny Him by your works. You are detestable. You are disobedient. You are unfit for any good work. You must be rebuked in silence. That's what Paul is doing. That's sharp. That's severe, especially today, where so much is about tolerance, we need to tolerate everyone. Paul looked this man in the eyes and he says what they truly are, then as he says, when Paul sees false teaching threatening the church, he does not be around the bush or content himself with mild generalities. Rather, he clearly and plainly calls it like it is. That's what Paul is doing. And Paul is simply following the pattern of the Old and the New Testament. He's simply following the pattern of his God and Savior. Brothers and sisters, if you go to the Old Testament, how often God addresses sinful, rebellious people, false teachers with harsh words. So, for example, you go to Ezekiel chapter 34, and and literally the Lord is telling Ezekiel, you shall prophesy against the leaders of Israel. And you tell them that I'm coming for them, that I am against them, and I'm coming to judge them. Jesus, think about Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, gentle, most gentle person who ever lived this earth. The most gracious one. Yet yeah, when addressing false teachers, so for example in Matthew 23, just in Matthew 23, he calls them hypocrites six times. He calls them blind guides, blind fools, blind men, whitewashed tombs, child of hell, sons of those who murdered the prophets, serpents and brood of vipers. That's how Jesus addressed them. The meek Jesus. Jesus, we read earlier, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Look at Paul. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you receive, let him what? go to hell. That's what Paul is saying. Let him be a curse. Let him go to hell. Because hell is that man's place. He belongs to Satan. That belongs to hell. With satanic teachings. So you see how the Bible does not spare words when dealing with false teachers. Paul says in Galatians 5.12, I wish that those who, are un- those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Well, they're just going to keep part of the law? No, no, let them keep the whole law. Instead of just removing something, remove everything. Paul says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light, meaning they are servants of Satan. Paul also used this hard words in Philippians 3, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Peter, in in 2 Peter 2, he talks about false teachers as irrational animals. Born to be caught and destroyed. Blots. They're blots and blemishes. These are waterless springs. They have eyes full of adultery. That's how the the word of God addresses the enemies of the gospel. And suddenly we live in a culture, in a society where these things are so offensive that suddenly we think that we are more sensitive and more sensible than God himself. We start thinking that we are kinder and gentler than God himself. And if you are scandalized by Wapo and the other authors of the Bible, how they talk about this man, you need to repent. If you are scandalized, scandalized by such language, you need to repent because you think that you know better than God how to address these people. You think that you know better than God and that you are kinder, more loving than God himself. When you understand how harmful, how dangerous, how vicious, how malignant and lethal these false teachers are and their false teachings, then you are able to appreciate and love and treasure these harsh words. When you understand how diabolical, how satanic, how destructive these men are, then you say, Thank you, Lord, for warning us. Thank you. Thank you for this strong language. You do not come to a serial killer, a rapist, a pedophile, any other monster and say, Oh, he's really nice. Oh, it's just a different opinion that he has. You don't say to such people, just come and let's have dinner together. No, you treat them like monsters. And false teachers are monsters eager, eager to be agents of Satan, to take more and more people to hell and destroy families. Philip Toner, he says, Paul was not slow to sound the alarm. He was not slow to direct Titus and the church leaders under his care to engage these people. While there are certainly numerous areas of belief and practice where modern Christians must allow differences to exercise side by side, there are also too many situations where indiscriminate open-mindedness has allowed the historical gospel to be diluted to suit modern and postmodern modern sensibilities. Then he says, a text such as this one here might be regarded as a study in religious bigotry and narrow-mindedness. Or it might be regarded as an authoritative, author, authoritative wake-up call for many of us today. I'll take as an authoritative wake-up call for us. The enemies are after us. The enemies are after healthy churches. Amen, And that's not a happy job. It's not like pastors delight in rebuking and silencing false teachers. It's not like people rejoice in doing these things. If people have pleasure in doing that, they have something wrong with their minds. Because we saw how pastors, elders, overseers, they're supposed to be marked by gentleness, by patience, by kindness. That's why... People who are always attacking, just attacking, 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 attacking. It's, it's, something's wrong with this person. I know that we must attack, but we never run to be attacking people. But when it, the situation comes, we need to do it. We need to do it. I remember Spurgeon, he's well known, well known for controversies. Controversies. But he would say he, 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 he hated. He hated engaging with these type of things. Once he said that, I would rather run a mile any day they have to do these things. And he said, and, and let me tell you that a mile is a law for people like me who have problems in their legs. He had ru- r- rheumatism in his legs. and say, I would rather run than get engaged. But we need you. We need you to get engaged. And we need to call them what they truly are. It was John Calvin who said, a pastor needs two voices, one for gathering the sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. Yes, indeed. And the strong language is never, never profanity. We don't use profanity. The Bible doesn't use profanity, cussing. Because there are many, especially in Reformed circles nowadays, that they like to speak profanity, they like to cuss, just to get likes in their videos, just to be sensational. There's nothing of that in the Bible. It's always, always to help people understand who they truly are. I remember Martin Luther. Remember the Pope was supposed to be called the Most Holy Father. Luther used to call him the Most Hellish Father to help people remember that that man was actually an instrument of Satan, not from the Father in heaven. So we don't call names just for the sake of calling names and being sensational. It's when the Bible tells us and when the, the, the situation arises, we must be faithful to the scriptures and we must not be ashamed of the scriptures. Like so many people are ashamed ashamed of strong language, harsh words when needed. And I'll finish with one more quote from John Calvin. He says, One of the most important parts of the tact and wisdom needed by a pastor is the ability to adapt the manner of his teaching to the character and habits of his people. He will not deal with the stubborn and insubordinate in the same way as with the meek and teachable. To the latter, we should show a mildness suited to their teachableness. But the stubbornness of the former must be corrected with severity. For as they say, it takes a hard wedge to remove a hard knot. Paul has already given the reason why Titus is to be sharp and unbending in rebuking the Cretans. They are wicked beasts. So as we come towards the the section here, Titus, from verses 5 through 16, you have the tale of two leaders. You have a tale of two types of leadership. One type is the verses 6 through 9, and that's The authentic leaders. Those who follow after the great shepherd Jesus Christ. Those who have a heart after the shepherd's heart. They are authentic. They are holy. They are godly. And then from verses 10 through 16, you have the tale of a different type of shepherds. Those are the false shepherds. Plagiarizers. Fake. That must be avoided. So, when you understand how evil, how deadly, sinful, sinful, False teachers are, instead of getting offended and scandalized, we will rejoice. The harsh words are necessary to show us who they truly are. They must be silenced. They must be muzzled. Why? Because they are perverting the teaching of the gospel. And brothers and sisters... Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, how sweet the sound. And those voices that are perverting God's grace must be muzzled so people can listen to the sweet sound of God's grace. That's why they must be gagged, they must be muzzled. So the gospel can be proclaimed and people will listen and hear about Jesus Christ. Because only through the sound doctrine, people can truly know Christ Jesus, love Jesus, grow in holiness, grow in affection, grow in comfort. Amen? So that's why they must be silenced. That's why they must be called by what they truly are. We will perish without the truth of the gospel. And Satan wants us to be infiltrated with truth attackers. People who will deviate us from the truth. And when we listen to the true gospel, we are reminded that apart from Jesus Christ, apart from Christ Jesus alone, we all are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, liars, lazy gluttons defiled, detestable, and unfit for any good work. That's why we need the sound doctrine to remind us that only through Jesus Christ, only in Jesus, now we who once were unfit, once we who were once worthless, now in Jesus, because of Jesus' righteousness, we now can be acceptable, clean, and fit for every good work that the Lord calls us to do. Amen? And I ask you to pray. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your elders that we will be this type of man that Titus calls us to be. And you pray that the the Lord will protect us from false teachers and false teachings. They're so enticing and so easily creeping. Remember, the cowbird is ready. is always flying ready to lay eggs in other people's nests. And we need to be watchful. We need God's grace to protect us. Amen. Father, we come before you and we thank you. We thank you for the hard words that you give us. The hard words remind us how much you love us. How holy you are. How righteous you are. and reminds us that we are in a spiritual battle. There is a war going on. And I pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us for not taking seriously what's taking place. You call us. You call us to stand firm, being watchful. So please, help us, Lord. And I pray, I pray, Lord, that You'd protect us. Unless the Lord builds the house, the workers, they labor in vain. And unless You watch over us, unless You shepherd us, unless you take care of us, unless you defend us, all the work we do will be worthless. So please guard us, O Lord. Deliver us. Deliver us from these satanic birds that want to come to a healthy nest to lay their eggs. Help us. Help us to trust in Jesus alone. Help us to run to Jesus alone. And for those here who do not know you, That they would see the love of Christ even in the hard words. Because the hard words reveal the deep love of Christ for His people. Who only wants to protect them. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. (laughs)